Hi everyone, welcome to episode 11 of Swish Done with me, Paul Ologboye. This is a podcast where we talk about anything and everything on my mind this week. In this episode, I look at the release of Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe after six years of forced imprisonment at the hands of the Iranian government. The horrific story of Child Q and a quick recap of other news. With that being said, let's jump right into it. Yo peeps, welcome back to the podcast. Hope you all are doing well. I uh, hope you're having a good week because um, I've been having a good week, I have to say. The weather has been beautiful for me. Spring is one of those like best time for me when it comes to weathers. I'm a winter guy, but spring, I love spring because then I can kind of head out, go for walks, um, get a little a little bit of sun on my on my skin, but at the same time, I still have that chilly, chilly vibe as well. So yeah, it's been good. been going out for my walks, trying to get about 8,000 steps in a day minimum and using that as a way to kind of like kick my body back into gear. Um, kind of had a, a week and a bit um, to chill out when it comes to um, training uh, been back been back to the gym um, following my last competition but kind of easing myself into it and then I get back into full-blown program training for my next competition which is going to be the All England um, in end of May um, that's about going to be about eight weeks so I'm looking forward to that looking forward to going in there and kind of ironing out some of those little missteps I had from my last competition but yeah like I said things have been good this week has been great the weather's been beautiful um, life has been good as well. A couple of life updates, you know, uh, or what I call leveling up in life um, has been happening around me, which I'll touch on in a separate episode. <clears throat> but yeah, it's been great. And um, I've been hearing back from a lot of you that listen to my podcast. I really do appreciate the support um, for my for the podcast and the feedback I get. So I'm um, looking forward to doing more and kind of getting a bit more updates to my podcast and like i said my podcast is available on various other platforms spotify apple um google um deezer and a lot more i'm trying to get back trying to get it onto youtube soon as well but yeah today's episode we're going to kick off with looking at the the story around um hopefully i don't butcher this name so badly but um nazanin zagari radcliffe um, I find the story very interesting and wanted to kind of touch on this because there's quite a lot of moving parts to this story. Um, so kind of give you a brief, sort of a brief outline of who she is. Um, she is a dual British and Iranian citizen um, that lives in London with her husband, Richard Ratcliffe, and her daughter, Gabriella. Gabriella. Um, she worked in the UK as a project manager for a couple of charities. Um, and But in March... Of 2016, um, she was detained by the Iranian government while on a visit with her daughter that was around one and a half or so um, at a time. Um, the Iranian government or the authorities alleged that uh, Ms. Nazanin was kind of plotting to topple the government in, in Tehran, but there was no official charges, but that's what they claimed. And they said she was leading a foreign-linked hostile network um, to topple the government but her previous employers are like yo we had nothing to do we, we don't know what you're on about there's no there's no secret foreign linked hostile network or whatever the case might be so she was detained um, but kind of looking into the whole detention of her so the, the timeline which I pulled out from BBC um, news is quite an interesting timeline so just kind of state the story around her so in um, April to June of 2016 um she was shoved um, um she was put through um intense interrogation spent the first two months imprisonment solitary confinement and all that and, and all of that harsh treatment um and in 2016 of um, september 2016 she was sentenced to five years in prison by the revolutionary um court in tehran and in april of 2017 she she, um, she lost her appeal, a final appeal to the Iranian um, Supreme Court to overturn her sentence because she was innocent of what, she, of what they were claiming that she was a part of. So things just kind of kept on moving, right? Moving. And like, I kind of kept a bit in touch with this story over the years and kind of looking at, I remember her husband 
uh, on, a hung, on a hunger strike, um, protesting in front of the embassies and stuff like that, trying to get the government officials to help um, bring her back home, um, fight for her, fight for her and bring her back home, which kind of links to where this is going to be going to <clears throat> in in June of in June of 2019, um, she did a 15-day hunger strike, um, calling for basically her release. Um, in March 2020, she was given a temporary leave from from prison because of the whole pandemic, um, COVID, and then she was under house arrest in um, Tehran um, at her parents' house. In April of 2021, she was sentenced to another year in prison um, because of some new charges. And in October of 2021, she lost her appeal again for the second jail time. But then everything kind of accumulates to now, um, March of 2022, whereby she was released back to the UK. And how things have kind of um, progressed, looking in, if you're not kind of in touch with what is going on, you might think, all right, cool. What were the the charges? Because they weren't really stated out saying that she's part of a hostile organization trying to top of the government without actually giving real concrete evidence as to what that is it was quite interesting until when the iranian government kind of talked about a debt that the uk owed to iran and how her imprisonment is linked to this debt and this for me i'm just going to steady out right now basically the uk government utilize her imprisonment as a way as a way to just say no we're not going to pay the Iranian government what it, what we owe them and you know what you can have her because even when she came out um she gave a, a press conference on monday and i listened to it on, on my drive on my drive back home on the motorway drive back home and it was quite telling what she had to say and um a few people online and a few um, government officials are like she, she she should be more grateful for her being released and the work that they've done but in actual fact she was like yo you guys could have done this six years ago you guys could have done this six years ago knowing fully well that my imprisonment my detention by the Iranian authorities was as a result of you and the debt that the British uh, that the British government owed Basically, what is this debt? So, um, it's kind of linked. It's it's kind of linked back to an arms deal, a failed arms deal, dating back forty years. Um, basically, in nineteen seventy, the Shah of Iran was a very pro-Western monarch. You know, <laughs> you know how things used to be. Still, still the case nowadays, but how things used to be. Um, he ruled the country back then, and during this during this rule, he ordered. Um, I think the number, according to BBC, was um, 1,500 chieftains um, tanks and 250 armed recovery vehicles from the UK in a deal that was worth over £650 million. And the, uh, um, um, the Shah paid the money to the International Military Service, I- I- IMS. Um, that was a private company and then subsidy. Uh, but was a subsidiary of the UK Ministry of Defence. So they paid. They made an order. They paid for the order. And um, only, I think, 180, 190 of those tanks were delivered to the Iranian authority before the Shah um, was deposed in a revolution, in an Islamic revolution in 1979. But what was interesting was when this pro- um, when the pro-Iranian leader, the Shah of Iran back then, was 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 kind of, I mean, kicked out, was deposed. The, the Iranian government went back and said, "Yo, you you didn't keep up to the end of the uh, end of the deal, so we want our money back. You didn't deliver, we want our money back." And the British government was like, "No, no, 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 no." So, in 1990, the Iranian government took um, the IMS and basically the the UK government to to court, um, to the International Chambers of Commerce, um, basically a global organization, and they ruled that that rule when it comes to trade disputes between, um, between countries 
and it found in favor of Iran. There were a couple of appeal processes and whatever the case might be, but at the, at the end of the day, they still came saying, no, nah, you got to pay Iran the money that you owe them. You didn't fulfill the contract, you didn't fulfill the deal, you got to pay them. But however, 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 the European Union placed sanction on Iran in 2008, which is quite significant because as a result of the of the sanction that Iran was placed under, the IMS payment wasn't going to be released to Iran. And this, in a sense, was a bit of a, and I mean, a bit of a bit of a dodgy way for the UK government to be like, oh, look, look, there's a sanction on Iran. So we're not going to give you guys this money because you're going to use this money for whatever the case you want to use it for. And then after that, the Iranian government was like, yo, listen, you got to pay us our money. You owe us. Sanctions or not, you still owe us. That I find really dodgy by the British government because, yo, finding ways to kind of like not pay what you owe people. And then in January of 2021, no, 2012, in January of 2020, um, 2012, the EU agreed to an oil embargo on Iran over its nuclear program, basically essentially banning all new oil contracts with the, con- with the country. And the reason why this is all important is because it links to the story and the anger Nazini has saying, yo, you guys are clear, you guys were clear. The reason why I'm being locked up by the reigning government is simply because they are they are holding me hostage. They are holding me a prisoner because you owe you owe him this money and you are choosing not to pay them this money. And you not choosing to pay them this money means that I am losing my liberty, I am losing my freedom. I am being locked up, I'm being put in solitary confinement, I'm being restricted, I have no I have no opportunity to see my husband, to see my kid grow. That for me just bugs my mind. It's crazy. She basically lost close to six years of a daughter of of, of life with a daughter. Not seeing her daughter grow key stages of growth in her life, she had no input. Our husband was here fighting the fight, going on hunger strikes, trying to work with the UK government. Fully knowing well, the UK government, fully knowing well that this could have been done in that same year by just giving back the money that you owe. Just pay the money that you owe. But no, they chose not to. It was a deliberate attempt by the British government at, at this time, at that time, not to pay the money, knowing fully well that paying the money guaranteed the release of her. The only reason why she's back, a couple of reasons why she's back and why she was released. One, the UK government paid the money that they owe. But it's not just the money. There's also something linked to it. And this is where we all have the whole like current conflict russia ukraine and the international um, um international different countries and what they're doing regarding this the sanctions against russia and saying that the uk for example saying we're going to stop the import of russian gas and oil and all that kind of stuff it's very interesting that now the british government out of the eu so technically it doesn't have to kind of follow the EU regulations and stuff like that and also EU shank, um, EU sanctions. It's gone to Iran. All right, cool. We pay you this money. The money that we owe you. We actually owe you this money. We pay you this money. You release. That's it. And other. She's not the only one that's there. The other nationals. She came back with another with another um, British um, citizen that was locked up there as well. But the other people as well that are held by the reigning authorities for whatever so-called crimes that have committed cool we'll pay you this money you release her but we might potentially have to do a little deal you know last week boris johnson and some of the cabinet members and whatever the case might be visited saudi arabia and the united arab emirates in an effort to increase oil productions and input and import from the gulf states Basically, not to reduce our dependence on oil on, on Russia energy. For me, that there is the crux of it all. 
it is. For me, it is the crux of it all. Because it is interesting that we are willing to let's touch about let's just think about it. We don't we, Vladimir Putin, Russia, oh no no, the Brit they're the enemy of Britain. We don't want to do business with them. We don't want and we're gonna sanction them, we're gonna hold, we're gonna hold, we're gonna hold the government, the Kremlin, we're gonna hold them responsible, we're gonna we're gonna hold the whole country responsible. Okay. We don't want to depend on Russian oil and gas anymore. No. Energy, we got to move from them. Okay. They are our enemy. But now we are choosing to, the UK government wants to then go lie back in bed or continue a more closer relationship with the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, that we call our ally. What is the difference between him and Putin? They both run anti-democratic um, governments. They both oppress minorities. They both murder opponents. Vladimir Putin, we know, and I mean, Kremlin involved in poisoning various uh, various opponents of the government, killing people. The same thing goes to the crown prince. He, they're not innocent. Him and his government is not innocent. Let's not forget, in 2018, him. Let's not try and sugarcoat it because we know how to try to sugarcoat it and wipe it under the carpet saying that it was it was people in the government but not him. No. He made he makes the call. In 2018, Jamark Choji, the journalist that was assassinated when he walked into the Saudi Arabia consulate in Istanbul. He was basically murdered. It's it's just thinking about it and just looking at the stories that were told about how it went down. That was really messed up. But this is but this this is the person and the government and the people that we want to go back into bed with to work with in order to get more oil and oil and gas from them. The British government <laughs> this current Tory government has no shame. It has no shame. It is willing to sacrifice moral. It is willing to sacrifice the citizens like Nazanin and Havel being locked up in jail, but only want to do business when it only only will fight for her release when it's beneficial to our government for cheap oil. What else? Okay, cool. Russia right now is at war, it's bombing civilians in, in Ukraine. That is fucked up. So is Saudi Arabia. So is Saudi Arabia right now bombing, bombing civilians in Yemen. I don't see the uproar about that. The same time that this was going on, we had Saudi Arabia announce the max execution of 81 individuals. Some are, some are Saudi citizens and some are non-Saudi citizens on a range of so-called offenses. Terrorism-related crimes, murder, robbery, arms smuggling, whatever the case might be or disrupting the social fabric of, of national cohesion, or whatever the case might be, participating or inciting citizens and protests. They literally had people executed. I remember I posted it on my, I posted it on my story, on my Instagram story, and I had somebody message me back saying, oh, but, uh, um, um, we don't know. We don't really know um, 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 what the crimes are that these people did, but, you know, that that the British government is has to go do business with them because at the end of the day we need to think about ourselves. We need we need energy. We need to reduce the cost of, of energy and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, some people are just so gullible and so stupid and so insensitive. I, I I'm saying it. I am not for execution. I'm sorry. I am not for execution. This is just me talking as a human, but also I'm talking as a black person. We know countless of times, the story is well known. For example, in, in, in US prisons, most people on death penalties, at least, I think, I think, I think they said the figure is like one to three out of 10 people in, on, on death penalties. I, I can't remember the figure, but a proportion of people on, uh, uh, on the death penalties are actually innocent. We've... We're hearing stories of people being released after 20, 25 years in prison because they were innocent. 
How are we so sure that the Saudi government is so thorough? Is so thorough when it comes to basically the rule of law and how they deem somebody a criminal. But our government is okay, is willing to want to go lay lay more comfortably in bed with the Saudi government. I'm just I'm just not for that. I'm sorry. I'm not for that. I'm not for that. I, I stories like this I find it really really disgusting. And when I think back to because I can't, you know what I mean, I can't fathom what Nazanin went through for 6 years. For 6 whole years literally had your life ripped apart. Literally had your freedom stolen. Stolen from you. Not just by the Iranian government, but by the British government. You were the lamb to the slaughter. By the, you, she was the lamb to the slaughter. The British government was happy enough for her to go sit down in prison in Iran. Because they didn't want to pay a bill of, I think, 400 million. Because they didn't want to pay that bill. They didn't want to pay debt that they actually owed for the past 40 years because they chose not to do that. They were willing to sacrifice her. I'm, I'm saying, it, bruv, she has the full authority to sue the government and I think she should. And we literally had ministers coming out saying, oh, she needs to be a bit more, I mean, more grateful for the hard work. What? She literally saw five different foreign ministers come through her door in prison telling her that we're going to get you out. And they could have done that that same year in 2016 that she was, she was arrested. Because the Iranian government made it clear, yo, we will let her out if you, don't, if you pay us our money. You pay us our money, we'll let her out. But it took the UK government. It took this Tory government six years. And for me, it is all it all links. It all comes down to yo, now we can do business with Iran. Cool. We'll pay your money and now we can talk oil. We can talk energy. Because Iran has a very big energy in, in energy supply. Now that the UK is out of the EU. They don't really have to walk around. I mean, they can, we, we, the UK government can walk around the embargo. It doesn't have to hold up the sanctions anymore. So it's cool. This is what the UK government is happy to do. And for me, it's... Like I said, she needs to sue. I remember listening listen to the press conference and her, uh, her husband tried to play, you know what I mean? Safe ground. And she was like, no, 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 no. Press conference. She she was bold. I, I love the way she handled that press conference. If you get a chance, find it online and listen to it. She was bold. She's like, nah. I shouldn't have been there for the past six years. You could have sorted this out there and then. The UK government could have sorted that out there and then. You can't tell me the UK government doesn't have 400 million. When we know how much they've been wasting around, you can't tell me the UK government doesn't have 400 million to make sure that I'm released. Get me out of this place, bruv. Get me out of this place. But nah, they chose to sit on this. Which I say, she needs to sue the government from, from left to right. Sue them all. Sue them all and make sure they pay. And give you a public apology. Public apology is well deserved. Because something like this can never be allowed to happen again. It can never be allowed to happen again. The British government shouldn't be able to put a citizen in a position and have their life stripped away from them because we choose, because the British government doesn't want to pay his debt. 
Now, just imagine how many other people around the world are being held against the will because our government isn't choosing to want to do what, it, what it's meant to do. Isn't choosing to want to pay up. Nah, 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 nah. That's just wrong. And I believe, like I said, sue them all. She deserves a public apology. Man, six years. Six years. Do you know the amount of trauma that someone like that has to go through? She's never going to be the same. She's never going to be the same. Someone like that. Man. I try to imagine myself in that position. I swear to God, if that was me, I would want the British government to pay. I would want to bring down this whole establishment. Everyone that was aware of what it could take for me to be let out, I want them to. I want them to face. Ju- I, 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 I want them to face some sort of justice. I want them to be held accountable from the top to the bottom. Boris Johnson should be held accountable for this. His action or inaction of him and his government directly led to Nazanin being held for the last six years and they need to be held accountable. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Um, So in this next segment, I'm going to be covering a, I would say this story every time any update of this story comes my way, it gets my blood boiling. And this is about Child Q. Hopefully a lot of you know about this right now. Um, Child Q, and and this is reports, um, some of what I'm about to say are reports from from the Daily Mail and the Hackney Gazette. So basically, a brief overview, Child Q, um, a black schoolgirl who was strip searched by the Metropolitan Police Officers um, while on a period after she was wrongfully suspected of smelling of cannabis. Just 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 that alone. Just just that just repeating the repeating that word alone, that set that sentence just makes me angry. She was suspected of carrying cannabis. When the incident occurred in 2020, which for me, if you're 2020, took two years. Like, why did it take two years for this to come out? And there was nothing found on her. Basically, she came to school in an inner London school for a mock exam. Came there, standard, just like thousands of kids around the country did on that day. Came in for a mock exam, a GCSE mock exam. And on that day, a teacher, oh, I detect the smell, a strong smell of cannabis on you. And this girl stated to be a, she stated to be a high achiever, a very smart girl, intelligent. The teacher suspected that she might be carrying weed on her. And then they questioned her. She said, no, I ain't got nothing on me. I got nothing to do with this. Denied ever using or having drugs on her. But then the teachers went ahead and searched her, searched the bag, her blazer, her scarf, her shoes, but they found nothing. That alone, if it all if it all ended there, that alone is crazy a lot. It's crazy already. But then the teachers, like, oh, we've smelt this before on you. So they called in the safe school police officer, and this is an, uh, this is something that was brought into effect last year. And it's crazy that basically last year the government and 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 and, and basically the police symbol were like, all right, cool, we're gonna have police officers working in our British schools assigned to areas that had high deprivation. Basically, you know what they're saying. We know what that that language means. Cool. The code of the the code of the safer school police officer. He he told them they recommended he recommended them to call one 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 zero one to ask for a female officer to come and attend. Instead, what happened? You had four metropolitan police officers turn up, two males, two females, to deal with one person. For me, that's just, that's wild. 
that is wild. And they escorted her to the school medical room. This is where things take a turn for the worse. And this is also this also speaks to the fear of black people when it comes to our our how will I put it interactions with police or people with authority. She literally confirmed to whatever she was asked to do. So that she doesn't miss her exam, she doesn't get in trouble. And they performed basically an illegal search. Even after she was adamant that she said, yo, listen, I've got nothing. I don't use drugs. I don't carry. I don't, I'm not involved in any of this. They searched her. They subjected her to a naked strip search by two of, two of the officers under the Section 23 of the Muses of Drug Act, which is an act that it should be only for adults. But no. They subjected her to that. With no other with no other adult supervision. These two officers decided to perform an illegal search on her. Found nothing on her. Just like she said. I had nothing on me. I don't carry. I don't use drugs. I don't use any of that. They went ahead and searched her. That's just that's just wrong on so many levels. If that if she was my sister, even if it was a if if that was a boy, a girl, and I would want to burn everything down. What would go through what would go through people's mind to think that's okay? Especially people in authority to think that's okay for you to do something like that to a kid. A kid. Now that's really messed up. Now the child, I mean, there was a report released. The child had disturbed, is disturbed by the experience. She's self-harming, changed her from a very happy-go-lucky individual now it's literally profound has a profound change in her the mp for hackney north and stoke newington um diane abbott came out and said and this is where there's a race element and i've seen some people try to argue this don't argue this because it tends to be people that live in a bubble that tends to want to argue about race and defend actions when in broad, broad daylight there is a race element to this basically Diane Abbott came out and said 25 children in the last year in Hackney and Tower Hamlets were strip searched that itself is mind boggling 25 kids children were subjected to strip search she claimed that out of that 25, 23 of them were black. That's evidence. It points. It isn't, it isn't just isolated. There is a race element to this. These are kids being confronted with brutality by those in authority. The police. These are kids there's a term for actually this. It's called adultification. Adultification of young black people, of young black kids. In this case, this was the adultification of a black girl. That we should not be new to this. This is actually being a matter of discussion for a good 10 years. It's big in America. It's also big in the UK. Adultification is a form of dehumanization. Does have ra- a racial prejudice to it. Basically, robbing black kids of the very essence of what makes them kids 
of childhood, of that development period. Basically, they're innocent. This is, this is people in authority utilizing actions that we can question when they are done to adults, utilizing that action on kids. That's crazy. But this has layers to it. And the reason why this makes me angry, but in no way am I surprised that things like this could happen and could escalate from a point of a teacher saying, I smell cannabis on a student. To them being escalated to, we're going to search this child. After we didn't find anything on the child, we are then going to call the authorities to get involved. And then the authorities are then going to perform an illegal search with no other adult supervision in that room on a child. And the reason why I say this, I'm not surprised because things like this are the out, are, 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 is, are, is, is a result of government policy. And I'll explain, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more. What do I mean by that? So there was, a, there was an article by uh, a lady, a teacher um, in The Guardian, um, Nadine Asbali, hopefully I pronounced her name properly. She's a secondary school teacher in London. And basically the article is called Child, Q, Child Q's School Failed Her. Teachers must not become an extension of the police. That for me really sums it up. Teachers in the past few years have been made to move away from teaching as the only focus to actually becoming a police, a policing force. In the article she mentioned, basically in recent years, there's been a growing trend of kind of mili- militar- militarization, military-style behavior management when it comes to schools. And these behaviors are predominantly in specific areas. Areas of higher population of black and brown kids. This is why I say there's a race element to it. Don't even bother arguing about it. That is a race element to this. There's routine back checks, searches, detention for for random stuff like slouching and stuff like that in classroom. People being sent into isolation for various reasons for not bringing maybe lunch money to school or or, or, or for whatever 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 reasons. People being sent into isolation. Isolation isn't something that we play about. This is stuff that we leave to, we, we leave to like trying, trying to question somebody for committing maybe a murder or, or, or like an assault or something like that. But these are tactics that are being used on kids in schools. Have police officers patrolling school corridors and vicinities of schools. Basically, this is Victorian style. Denying students their rights, assign, assigning authoritarian control to teachers. What the hell is that? It isn't an isolated incident. And the reason why I say it isn't an isolated incident, this is an outcome of government's policy over the years that has turned teachers into a policing force. And one major and one major I can pinpoint one of the times that it became very clear. You remember, if, if, if you remember the whole the whole story around Shimima Begum, the the girl that traveled to join ISIS in 2015 when she was the age of 15 with a couple of friends. And then there was a public inquiry, there were debates and stuff like that. And the police were being blamed by the family, but not just the police. The school was being blamed. The teachers were being blamed. 
Why didn't you see this happening? Why didn't you stop this from happening? Why didn't you stop the radicalization of kids in your care? Knowing fully well that the kids were being radicalized out, not in the school, but outside the school, through the internet, through various groups and whatever the, and whatever the case might be that's happening around. And then you had the government coming out saying, yes, we need teachers to be looking for signs. That right there was how teachers were being given authority, policing forces, to be acting in the way that they started to act. Given the full-blown support to implement military-style behavior management in school. That's why I say it's not an isolated incident. I remember, I remember when I was in school, the donkeys ago, and the first time I went into detention, talking about, and I was like, "Wait, hold on. Why are we using the word detention to start off with? Like, detention is like prison." I remember the first time I got put into detention, and this was because. And I'm trying to think <laughs> what happened there when I got put into detention. But whatever the case, I got put into detention. But then I thought detention was just the bill and end of it. No. But then with kids, other kids being put into isolation. Basically, kids would come into school and from period one to the end of school, they were literally left in the class all by themselves. They were isolated from everyone else. They couldn't interact with anyone else. Do you know how crazy that is? That ain't discipline. That's not how you discipline kids. And this is how the school system failed a lot of kids, especially kids in predominantly schools that had a higher percentage of black and brown kids. Because these were the tactics that were used in these areas. I went to school. I went to school in Forest Gate. I'm well aware of this kind of tactics that was used. In East London areas, this kind of tactics were used in various schools. Even though I went to a, a good school, this was still being done. This week, the um, the teacher was actually fired. And this leads back to me saying that this happened in 2020. Why did it take so long for this to come out? That's what I want to know. I want to know why it took so long for this to come out. And in that period of time, that teacher was allowed to go ahead being a teacher. That's wild. If the teacher has stopped at performing the search that it, that it did when it comes to searching a bag, a blazer, a scarf, a shoes, or whatever the case might be, and just stop this, okay, we found nothing. Go ahead. Cool. We might be able to debate that. We might be able to debate debate if the teacher overstepped. But the moment the teacher picked up the phone to call the police, that was a clear line for me. Because at that moment, the teacher has decided that we that I am not going to treat you anymore as a kid. Now I'm going to bring you into adult's world. I'm going to have people of authority utilize tactics that are using adults on you. I'm going to criminalize you. Because this could have gone left. This could have gone a whole lot worse. If you think about it. Just imagine the girl was like, no, I'm not going to let you search me. It turns into a scuffle with the police or whatever the case might be. And for whatever reason, something happens to her. She ends up being physically hurt. 
they try to restrain her, whatever the case might be. We've heard about people that have been that have died through restraining. This could have gone really sideways. I was I was um I was speaking to somebody on my on my social and we were kind of debating as to what oh if the teacher should have been fired. And I made and I made it clear. Like I like I just said, the moment the teacher picked up the phone to call the police, that there nah. Nah 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 nah. That teacher just crossed the line. That teacher just crossed the line because now you have you have brought adults way of way of life onto a kid. You have criminalized this kid. What you smelled cannabis on a kid. It'll be wild if I walk out every day just because I smell cannabis on someone, I have to call the police. And this might be an adult. Talkless of a kid. Talkless of a kid. I just pick up the phone and call the police. You're like, oh, I smell cannabis on this person. That's wild. That is wild. Why don't we do the same when it comes to alcohol? Because I know some of you teachers be coming to school smelling of alcohol from the night before. Or from the same day. Because I knew teachers that used to drink even in school. I knew teachers that used to drink even in school. Why don't we do the same for alcohol? How wild will it be if, if students start calling police on teachers? Yo, I think my teacher's been drinking. My teacher's smelling of booze coming to school. That's wild, isn't it? And here you have people that are put in charge to take care of kids. Going further than they should go. To adultify and criminalize a child. This girl is never going to be the same. She's already broken. And I hope she gets the support that she deserves. I hope she does. She, she and her family are launching legal action against Scotland Yard and her school. And rightfully so. They should rain down hell on Scotland Yard and the school. What makes me proud about this all is looking at videos of students in the school protesting. Now that's what I love to see. Outside the school, people are protesting. People in the neighborhood are coming out saying, nah. We're not allowing this to go down. It's a shame that this is only coming out two years after. But we ain't going to let this slide. They need to be held accountable. The teacher is fired. Cool. But now, still need to hold that teacher accountable. Being fired isn't enough. In my books, people might want to debate that. Cool. Go ahead and debate that. But if this is the kind of shit that you do as a teacher, you shouldn't be in the teaching force. This should be a lesson to everyone out there that is a teacher. There are lines that you shouldn't cross. Just because the government says you need to be policing the kids in your school, you ain't got to do it. You ain't got to do it. Because it becomes a very fine line, a very fine thin line. And most of you might not see it coming. Because some of you might live in a very, very privileged environment. And then you become, you know what I mean? Your, your vision becomes skewed. becomes blurry. You don't know, you, you don't know how to act. Just because you're a teacher doesn't mean you're matured. And some of these teachers are, show, are showing it. They're showing it. And have just just having police patrolling schools. That's crazy. Listen, I'm well aware. I've been I've I've been in schools here. I went to school here as well. I know things can get a little dicey, especially with young kids. Things get dicey. People fight. People throw. It happens. 
But we can't have a situation whereby kids are being adultified. And this is only happening in so-called areas of high deprivation. How about the government start spending money in these neighborhoods properly? How about you stop cutting the benefit system in those neighborhoods? How about you stop cutting the various resources at the local levels in those neighborhoods? So that they ain't this so-called deprived. Tower Hamlet. That is, that is happening. Tower Hamlet. Which technically is one of the richest boroughs in the whole of UK. In the whole of the country. The reason why I say so is because in Tower Hamlet, that is where Canary Wharf is based. And we know what goes down in Canary Wharf. That's one of the main beating hearts of the UK economy. But you have it having one of the highest deprivation rates in the whole of the country. Highest rates of kids going hungry. Highest rates of, of, of poverty. So, and so on and so forth. So no one should tell me that there ain't money. High deprivation is that, a, is that a result of government inaction. But let me not stray too far. Let me not stray too far because that's just going to get my blood boiling. <laughs> going to get my blood boiling. <laughs> Let's not get too far. But I feel for this girl. I feel for this girl. She's never going to be the same again. And somebody, people of different levels need to be held accountable for this. So kicking off a new segment to this podcast that I'm basically just going to tie to top five stories of the week until I get a, a better flashy, you know what I mean, sounding, popping name to it. Uh, but yes, it's just looking at global stories that I find very interesting and just going to bring it to your knowledge. It's just going to be very quick, quick, pow, pow. You know what I mean? <laughs> very quick, quick, pow, pow. But yes, start for this. Um, there's a story, um, BBC News Asia and the headline states Afghanistan um, Taliban backtrack on reopening high schools for girls <sighs> what a shame so the Taliban reversed on the decision to allow Afghan girls to return to high school saying a ruling is still to be made on the uniform they must wear just think how crazy that is but yes they they have basically the schools are meant to open nationwide after a month of restrictions, but the, Tali- the Taliban came into power in August. But the educational min- uh, uh, um, ministry just abruptly said, no, nope, girls' secondary schools are to remain shut while we deal with uniform. Just think how crazy that is. Basically, this is a group of old men making decisions on how young girls live their life it's a shame it's disgusting this is why I am living in the west and living in the UK that I live in and thankful for the system we have but I'm also very critical of the system we have because we gotta make sure that we hold our system to a high level things like this it's disgusting because the people that are affected are these young girls that are trying to better themselves. They're trying to ed- attain an education to become full-fledged members of society, to be able to live a life that they want to live. It's been held back by a bunch of old medieval people that are making decisions to control them. It's crazy. I do hope this gets sorted. I do hope, I do hope that they're able to go back to school, get the education they deserve, and 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 hopefully contribute to the transformation of the country in the long term. That's what I hope for. But yeah, moving on to the next story. This is a bit. This is a bit of an interesting one to me because it's a sport-related story, and it's a discussion I'm going to have definitely on this on this podcast down the line because I want to have a very very deep dive conversation around this, and it's to do with transgender in sports. 
I find a very, very interesting topic that I want to kind of dive into. But yes, um, this story is from BBC Sports and it's titled Leah Thomas becomes first known transgender athlete to win NCAA swimming title. She became the first known transgender athlete to win the highest U.S. national college title with a victory in the women's 500-yard freestyle. Um, she she was swimming for the university the University of Pennsylvania and secured the title in four minutes thirty three seconds or so, and she beat out the second person to her um, was the University of Virginia's athlete Emma Wayant that actually competed and won in the four hundred individual medley silver. She won silver in the medley in Tokyo Olympic, but she finished second behind Leah Thomas. And then there was another person called Erica um, Sullivan that came third. And uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting one because right now there's a massive debate happening, especially in colleges and universities in America, about transgender and the involvement in sports. And if it is, if it is actually hindering or damaging women's sports in general. Um, so... That's the story right now, but it's actually an update to that story that came out yesterday. So the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, has a, has literally signed a proclamation basically recognizing the runner-up, Emma Wayant, as the winner of the title. Even though she lost to the transgender athlete Leah Thomas, but she's been she's been recognized as the winner. And this is where things get very, very, very murky. Because there isn't a clear guide to this. There's a deeper conversation to the science when it comes to transgender athletes, benefits, whatever the case might be, in sports. There's a deeper discussion when it comes to the science. But right here, it opens the politics, gets involved. It becomes it becomes an issue. There's actually a picture of them on the podium. Mm. The picture is the, the picture's quite telling. Um, if you get a chance, go online and look at the picture. The picture is quite telling. But yeah, the next story that I'm covering in this segment is something that actually broke out. If I'm thinking, was it last week, end of last week or this week? And is looking at a company called PO and the sacking of I think about 800 workers. So PO was a ferry company and they decided to sack last week 800 of the workers. Literally said they should join a Zoom meeting and literally fired 800 people. They were, I mean, they were giving them, offer them redundancy packages and stuff like that. But out of nowhere, they decided to fire 800 people. And um, right now it's being, it's being discussed if this is an illegal move by the company PMO and it's quite wild the way that they went ahead doing this so literally what they did was get a couple of get people on on half wages put them in a hotel nearby the port and then when they decided to fire the uh, um, 800 workers we're going to bust these people in to take over from those workers Basically, what the company was looking to do is basically do a very disgusting practice of fire and hire, which the UK government needs to make illegal. Basically, we'll fire you right now, and then we're going to rehire you on a new contract that is a lot shittier, that is shittier than the contract that you previously had. That's what they're looking to do. So right now, it's actually been discussed as to if PMO, um, P&O, Ferry, Ferries, the decision to fire was actually was illegal under employment law. So, um, my heart goes out to those um, just eight hundred people that literally just had a life switched on on them. And this shows the how I put it the oh god the term skips my mind, but how most of these companies don't care. Literally overnight, you make a decision to fire 800 people and then bussing people at lower wage to take over from them. That's crazy. 
That is crazy. They need to be held accountable. Forget about redundancy package. No, 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 no. We need to hold this company accountable because this company actually got money from the government during COVID. They were taken care of by the British public. They actually owned by another um, 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 company owns them that made record profit. They need to be held accountable. Nah, we ain't gonna let this fly. Nah. Moving on to another story that's closer to close to home. Um, it was reported by the BBC that um, Nigerian widows has um, lost their case against oil and the execution of their husband. So basically, there's a court case in in the Netherlands that ruled against four Nigerian widows in the lawsuit against the oil giant Shell over the execution of their husbands by the Nigerian military government in 1995. The men that were executed uh, were part of a group of nine activists involved in peaceful protest against the pollution caused by oil leaks in the Ogoni land in the Niger Delta. This is a very big news because just, a, just as of recent, Shell compensated the families. It was a shitty compensation But, I mean, they compensated the family and took some liability for the destruction of the ecosystem in that area. This man, the nine of them, um, the people that were protesting, they were dubbed the Ogoni Nine. And um, they were hanged. They were hanged after a, secret, after a secret trial, a very dubious trial. Because they were, they were, um, they were, they were convicted of, of murdering four traditional leaders which they all denied they all flat out denied and said they were framed but the families of the families and of, of, of the people that were killed claimed that Shell had actually been involved in bribing witnesses and the, and the testimony of those witnesses were used to convict the Ogoni Nine and, to, and some of the widows have been going to court to try to fight to say Shell was involved in the process that led to the execution of the family members, the husbands. It's a it's a very sad story. Shell actually paid out about twelve million pounds to the dead men's family in twenty nineteen. But did not I did not acknowledge any wrongdoing. I know people try to argue that sometimes you know companies just pay off people so that they don't have to deal with it. But this one is a bit more of a mm, nah. You don't just pay off families if if you had nothing to do with the execution of family members. Something stinks. Something really stinks. I'm going to keep my eye on this story to see how it goes because they do deserve justice. And finally, final one for the day is a story that has been reported in The Guardian. And it's basically the U.S. on Monday, the U.S. declared Myanmar army basically committed genocide against Rohingya Muslims. This is massive. Coming very late in, don't get me wrong, they are coming very late in. But this recognition is massive. Because basically, it's basically declaring that the Myanmar government have been mass killing Rohingya Muslim, putting them in concentration camps, basically been committing mass genocide on the population of the Rohingya Muslims. There's a statement from um, the Secretary, Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, that stated, that states, the United States has concluded that genocide has been committed seven times. Shows more than that. Today marks the eighth. I have determined that members of the of the Burma military committed genocide and crime against humanity, Blinken said. The U.S. government used the country's pre-1989 name, Burma. It's coming late, because 
a lot of people have died. But it's never too late to recognize the atrocities and make sure that people are being held accountable for this. And hopefully, this is a step forward in ensuring that we hold this country's and this government accountable and by doing so, potentially save the life of people that could have been in line to be executed by a government that doesn't want to recognize them. And that is a wrap, folks. Thank you for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed making it. Let me know what you think about this episode and much more by following us on Instagram at swishton underscore with Paul. And remember to like, follow, and share. On to the next one. Peace out.